Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast, right here on Arsblog.com. Hope you're well. It's been a couple of weeks since we've spoken, obviously, because last week there was no Arscast. We had an Arscast Extra on Monday, but there was no Arscast last week because of the interlull, and there wasn't anything happening from an Arsenal point of view, apart from the fact that our players were going away on international duty and, and steadily, as the week went on, getting more and more maimed and injured. So it just struck me that it probably wouldn't have been the most entertaining podcast of all time. If we'd done one last week, it would have just been me and perhaps a guest or two sitting around um, going, No, God! No! I actually found a YouTube video, which is, I think, 12 minutes of no of various uh, shapes and sizes and descriptions from films. I was just going to play that for a while because I think it it sums things up. Because when we last spoke, um, and that was before the Chelsea game, (laughs) um, Mesut Ozil, well, he wasn't broken for 10 or 12 weeks. And then he went away to Germany and we uh, discovered afterwards that he'd been injured during the game but continued even though the physios kind of knew and the manager probably knew, but he continued and uh, afterwards it turns out he's done for for that length of time. And that's a frustration, obviously, because, uh, you know, we've got too many injuries as it is. Lauren Cassiani sent home from international duty by France because he has chronic inflammation of both Achilles tendons and, uh, well, that's very painful. Anyone who's ever had any kind of Achilles problem will tell you that it's very, very sore. Um... And it means, of course, that when you're running in pain the whole time, you can't perform to the best of your ability. And that, I guess, is a consequence of not buying a defender in the uh, in the summer transfer window because we haven't been able to rest Kasielny as much as we should have been because uh, the only thing that's really going to cure him is rest, and he's then out of the uh, the game this weekend. We'll touch on that as this podcast goes on. There was one little bit of good news in terms of the injuries, and that involved Aaron Ramsey, who's expected back in full training on Monday and could be back in the squad for Anderlecht, which is which is excellent considering it was only last week or the week before people were saying with his hamstring problem he could have been out for for eight weeks so there is a certain element of i don't know whether it's misinformation or people are jumping to conclusions simply because it's arsenal where a player goes down and you say well three weeks well three weeks we know that's three months or they they i don't know what it is i don't know where the eight weeks thing for uh, for ramsey came from if he's going to be back on monday so uh, that's good news 
that's a piece of good news that we should cling to like a life raft on a choppy sea below which uh, lurks uh, injury sharks and hamstring barracudas and uh, knee ligament orcas and, of course, the one creature you don't want to run into, the squid of ultimate dismay. Because, A, it's a squid, it's way below the water and you're not and it is the squid of ultimate dismay. Not just any old dismay, ultimate dismay. So you want to avoid that. So we'll uh, hope that Aaron Ramsey is indeed back in the squad. We are as well going to talk today to uh, the author of an Arsenal book about an Arsenal legend, uh, which is launching tomorrow in the Tollington. That's, uh, the book is about Jordi Armstrong, so we'll be chatting to the author of that a little bit later on, as well as giving you a chance to win a couple of copies of the book also. So stay tuned for that. And, of course, of course, there was the Arsenal AGM which took place yesterday. Stan Kroenke was there. You know, the guy, he owns most of the club. Gave a little speech. We have an exclusive audio from the event, as you can hear. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm going to keep this very brief because public speaking and accountability are are not my thing. I want to thank you all most sincerely for the three million. You'll be glad to know I'm spending it well. I bought a new wig made from the fur of an endangered Siberian tiger. Only seven or eight of those left. I might do well to get a spare now that I think about it. And with the rest, I I bought Lindsay Lohan. (laughs) That's right. When they hit the skids like that, you can can just buy them outright. Man, I love me some freckles. (coughs) In seriousness, though, there are things that go on at Arsenal, um, which can only really be addressed to the board at the AGM. Um, These events have become over the... Over the last few years, I suppose more and more stage managed with pre-approved questions, but there were contentious issues um, about money, about ticket prices, about payments to Stan Kroenke, which were brought up. And uh, with me to discuss it is a man who was at the AGM there yesterday. You might have read uh, what he's written about it on Ars Blog and Ars Blog News. Uh, it's Andrew Allen. Hi there. Hello there. Um, all right, you were there, and it was. Uh, it seemed to be perhaps less contentious than in other years. Um, they seem to be more and more stage managed these events with pre-approved questions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there were obviously a couple of issues that came up, and I think issues that a lot of people would be uh, particularly invested in. Um, whether or not we got sufficient answers, I'll, I'll leave it to you to explain. But the first one that I would bring up is the the, the payment, the three million pound payment to uh, KSE to Stan Kroenke's company. That was brought up, and there was some kind of an explanation. But how did that go? Um, well, I, I I don't really feel like there was anything other answered apart from the fact that the chips basically went. We felt that they deserved to have the payment for the services rendered, and therefore we made a payment. He didn't confirm whether there'd be future fees because he didn't know whether or not there'd be future services. Um, it was all very vague, and a kind of they hid behind the fact that they didn't really need to go into any depth on the subject. I think, and. I mean, I think it left a bit of a bad taste in the mouth. There was no real suggestion on the part of the question that was up on the thing that it was necessarily linked to the the ticket price rise. Mm. But, I mean, his exact words were, we're entirely satisfied the fee was appropriate in terms of any future fees. That would depend on the natures of the services provided. But we don't, know what the, we don't know what the services that were provided we have, this time We were. have no, no idea, really. I mean, they've got a long and uh, extensive experience in modern sports management was another term he used. And we're using them to our best advantage to keep the club progressing. There was a lot of kind of terms and phrases used which 
really didn't add up to anything. Um, it's a bit worrying, is, isn't it? You know, I, I mean, if, if, if they could have justified it today and turned around and said, look, you know, they, they gave us advice with this, whether it was uh, something to do with commercial deals or, you know, y- you could surely get into some kind of specifics about what somebody did to earn three million pounds. Well, I guess you could if you had that to fall back on, which leads you to believe that maybe there wasn't that much in the way of services provided. And mm. therefore, this may well have been a, a kind of dividend in disguise, as it were. I, I mean, you can't help but wonder that because they've been deliberately vague. Now, whether or not this keeps getting pushed, we'll only probably find out if it happens again. Uh, but at the moment, I think we're all just going to be left to our own devices to, to, to you know, make up our own minds as to what we think about that. I think the fact that they haven't really been able to come up with any satisfactory explanation as to what the money was for or how it was earned mm. is, is really quite worrying. I mean, the strange thing in the way that the, tack- the question was tackled was that it was almost as if it was tackled, answered on the spot by someone trying to avoid an answer. But given that the questions were tendered in advance, it's mm. surprising that they couldn't come up with a, a more reasonable avoidance answer if they were going to go with an avoidance tactic. Yeah. Um, but, you know, maybe that's just, they just gave the whole issue a bit of short, you know, short shrift, really. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, then there was the ticket price rise. Um, obviously, yeah. ticket prices went up 3%. And for this one, uh, it looks like they made a bit more effort to try and explain it or justify it. I believe there were there were slides and everything. Yeah, even went to kind of PowerPoint to uh, to, to round the point home. I mean, for the, it's worth noting straight away that there was a level of uh, acceptance on the part of even Gazidis that supporters are finding it increasingly difficult to. Uh, fund their football habit to go to games to do things when they get there, whether that be you know buying merchandise and whatnot. Um, but his his real kind of point was uh, over the course of the last eight years, Arsenal's ticket prices have increased by ten percent. Uh, that working out at about uh, nine million pounds, I think. So it went from ninety one million pounds when we moved into the Emirates was the uh, the match day revenue that we got to about 100 million pounds uh, this time last year mm. and his suggestion really is that that 9 million pound increase is incredibly small compared to the increases we've made in other areas whether that be through commercial income whether that be through tv revenue deals and therefore we are becoming less reliant on ticket prices but that didn't really kind of you know he's, he it was almost as if he was saying we could have pushed much more on this well, know, yeah, if the, we wanted to. For, but that doesn't really kind of cover the fact that, you know, you've put the prices up 3% and people were struggling and the club is still sitting on some cash. Yeah. Um, but it, it just felt, again, like there was a certain amount of avoidance there. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, there was something you tweeted where uh, Ivan Gazeta says, demand far exceeds supply, which seems to me yeah. a justification for putting up the ticket prices uh, by 3%. We did it because, well, we, we could, because even if there's some attrition with people that leave or decide they can't take another 3% or can't pay that money, then, you know, we've got all those people waiting. But exactly. the thing, the other thing about it is, though, is if you go to the stadium, particularly at times last season, where demand and supply doesn't really come into the equation when there are simply a lot of empty seats because of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think he he responded to that. I didn't get around to tweeting at the time because there was a lot of figures being thrown about, but uh, the the club had made about 300,000 more tickets cheaper uh, uh, 
on the market, as it were, through the Capital One Cup £10 tickets, with some of those being £5 for things like students and OAPs. Um, and there was also, I think, the top-level ticket price had come down or something mm. by 10 quid. And, um, it, it, he kind of said, we're trying to make tickets cheaper in certain areas. I think Category C, categories, he said, the ticket price was down to 26 quid for some games. So it was a kind of... We can continue to put the prices up in some areas, which is basically all season ticket holders, and then in an attempt to try and get people in when those games aren't necessarily going to be full, we're trying to come up with other ways to make it easier to exchange tickets, buy tickets cheaper, which, I mean, you know, that's fair enough, but it's never really going to go far enough when the majority of supporters who turn up on a week-by-week basis are getting hit in the pocket. That's where it really hurts, and that's where it's really frustrating for people, I think. Um, But... You know, the other thing would be you always have to put this type of issue in light of would people be happy to pay a 3% increase if, you know, the club was winning every year, the club was making the the transfers that everybody thinks they can and are capable of making. Um, And I think a lot of the frustration is born out of that. Well, there may be supply and demand on the... On the, on the side of people wanting to watch the team, but those who are actually watching the team want to see a better team, and they don't feel that they're necessarily getting value for money on that. I mean, those uh, those uh, things like the £10 tickets for the, the Capital One Cup are brilliant, but to my mind, those are things that a football club should be doing anyway. Yeah. Uh, because you, you have to ensure that... Um, people who are going to become lifelong fans of the club and who are going to spend their money over decades going yeah. to see their football team are brought into the fold as, as early as possible. So I think it's a little, um, what's the word I'm looking for there, to try and pass that off as a justification for uh, a price increase. Um, I, I'm not sure I really buy that, to be to be perfectly yeah. honest. Um, he is, though, as always, uh, the, the consummate politician in terms of um, in terms of how he presents his answers, and he can talk for a long time without necessarily um, addressing the key points. I think he, he he makes it feel like you've listened to an answer and that he's given you some knowledge, but it may not be information that you wanted to digest or <laughs> needed to digest in the first place. Um, yeah. Which is an art, I guess. I mean, it is as you say; it's a kind of it's a politician's art. Um, the thing is, I, I you know, I, I, it's not that I have a soft spot for him. But I think quite often he's put in a difficult place because the decisions are made and he's the guy at the front who has to come up and explain them. And he doesn't want to do it, really. You know, he just he, he, he has to try and get out of it as best as possible and save face as best as possible. For, for the most part, I mean, I think Ivan probably on a day-to-day basis is much more ingrained in the club than, say, the guy who turned up uh, after uh, David Dean's departure, you know, he's—I think he's come to love the club, his, his emotions, and you know, he's part of the roller coaster as well. But yeah. um, you know, you, you you can't hide the fact that when you're not giving an answer, people won't see straight through that. Sure, sure, okay. Well, Arsene Wenger also was there, of course, um, yeah. and he addressed the crowd as he as he usually does. And I think, um, regardless of how you feel about Arsene Wenger. Uh, and what he should be doing or what he should not be doing or whether he should be doing it at all. He's a very impressive speaker and somebody who's very interesting to listen to. How was what he said uh, taken in the overall context of things? Well, everybody, there's always the anticipation when it's Arsene Wenger because I don't think you, you know, many people get to be in a room with Arsene Wenger and listen to him at such close quarters. And he is good, you know, he's not he's not someone who's relying on 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 cue cards or anything like that. Yeah. He just stands up and and starts talking and people listen. 
um, there were a couple of interesting points. You know, he was looking back over last season and how he felt like after the Villa game on the first day of the season, there was a, a little revolution, a, a tsunami on the club, stuff like that. Um, but really, it, I didn't feel like it was the kind of you need to stand by us kind of speech that I think in the depths of the kind of uh, of last season that he, he tried to give and, and tried to unite everybody. I guess he didn't really need to do that because we had an FA cup and it was standing right in front of him as he spoke. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the most interesting point in the entire speech really was the acceptance that he should have bought a defender. He said, we could have bought one more player. We didn't find him. We'll try in December to rectify that because we're a bit short with the injuries we have. We'll rectify that in the transfer market in January. Um, now, that kind of obviously was was met with a murmur of approval, but also why was, didn't you do yeah, it in the first place? Yeah, exactly. That was that was really the biggest issue, and the frustration I think which came out in one of the questions when it was put to the floor was um, really why why didn't we buy a defender? Was it because the board had withheld the cash? Or was it because Arsene Wenger's pretty much incompetent and couldn't find anybody and decided not to in the in, in the circumstances? And um the response really was quite odd from Sir Chips, which was uh we back Arsene Wenger when he has a plan and we stay quiet when he doesn't, which I think was kind of Chips putting his foot in his mouth there because it didn't make for a very good line. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of makes the board sound rather uh, tepid and uh and, and completely powerless uh, in the face of Arsene Wenger's... Well, well I suppose of, they are, though, aren't they, well, in, t- in footballing terms? I, I guess they are. I, but it, the, the, but the at the same time, that's, is, that's a big problem for Arsenal fans, yeah. isn't it, really? I mean, everybody thinks if, you, if you're going to have a board and you're going to have a manager, what good is having a board that does nothing when the manager is completely in control? Mm. Yeah, OK. Um, well. There was one other thing that I thought was really interesting in Arsenal's speech. He, was sort of, he spoke very passionately about trying to get players, modern players, to, to, to buy into that sense of togetherness that comes with being part of a club. And I think he's incredibly worried about the idea that football is just a game for mercenaries now, looking for one contract and the next contract. And he spoke kind of rather wholeheartedly about working with the youth team players and trying to instill this idea of togetherness and the idea that football players can take something from their careers by being part of something much bigger, being part of a club and buying into the values, which I thought was kind of, you know, that was nice. It also kind of smacked up a guy at the end of his career looking at kind of how he might pass on something to, you know, future generations. Mm. And that, I suppose, uh, is a part of why he brought in or has sort of developed this British core uh, yeah. at the club, I guess. Um, all right, well, look, away from the AGM, there are other issues, of course, uh, as we get ready to face Hull. Uh, the lack of defenders, as you pointed out, is mm. is a key one because Callum Chambers is suspended um, for picking up a, a five yellow cards. And Lauren Koscielny, who returned home from international duty with a chronic Achilles problem, I think Arsene Wenger said um, is going to need rest. Doesn't need surgery, but needs rest. Of course, it becomes very difficult to rest a player when you're absolutely and utterly reliant on him. Um I don't suppose there's any point talking about why we didn't buy a defender at this point. But the question, I suppose, is what, what are we going to do against Hull? Let's talk of Monreal at, at centre-half. Would you do that or would you look to perhaps bring in uh, Isaac Hayden? Um, or would that be too much in, uh, inexperience in a back four that's probably going to contain uh, Hector Bellerin as well? Mm-hmm. I mean, first and foremost, it looks as though we are literally going to be limping through to the January transfer market. I mean, when you use the term chronic, 
in any injury it doesn't sound good does it no. um and in Koscielny's absence I I think he'll go with Monreal because Monreal was the guy who after Chambers Mertesacker and Koscielny he mentioned as being the fourth choice um option centre back I think he'll do that given that Gibbs is fit it would be interesting to see what would have happened if, if Gibbs wasn't fit <laughs> it's only I mean, a matter of time it's only a matter of time yeah and then I, I guess Bellerin's not done anything to dissuade anybody that he can't do the, the right back role he certainly looks raw but you'd hope that playing against Hull City won't necessarily be the same as playing against Borussia Dortmund yeah um so I'm, I'm I'm confident enough in that, but I do think it's going to make Saturday a real scrap. I think they'll definitely have their chances. They they've gone out and spent big money in the in the attacking department. I think they bought is it Abel Hernandez, who's mm. in from Syria, who's a, a decent player, and they they've got a couple of other big old blokes there who can who can definitely get a goal. I think Yelovich is now scoring goals as well. So the defence is definitely going to have to be on their on the guard, who what whoever the personnel are. Mm. And I guess that puts a lot of emphasis again on on midfield as well. Um, yeah. Some some very good news though in the, in the sense that uh, Arsene Wenger told the press conference before the AGM that Aaron Ramsey uh, will be back in the back in training on Monday and could be in the squad to face Anderlecht. So that's a that's a positive. Yeah, I mean, I, it and he can is. play right back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's definitely a positive, and I think he also said, you know, Arteta's available as well. My 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 one worry is is that Arsene, even though he always talks about the you know the dangers of bringing back players too quickly, by and large, Arsene is the type of person who can't resist bringing back a player too early, and he's he's even done it and admitted it before the end, the start of this season that he was in risk of you know, using Ozil too early and Ozil getting an injury in October and Ozil did exactly that. Um, so we'll see. I think it's nice that Ramsey's back, but we have to also be honest, he's not been in great form so far. So I don't necessarily think he's a big miss for the next two games. Uh, but obviously we're so short in personnel and balance in that midfield that, that his presence, if someone else got injured, which, you know, is, is great. Mm. Um, I think I think for the most part he'll probably try and use Wilshire, assuming that Wilshire's um, recovered yeah. well enough from from the couple of England games that he's had. Yeah. All right. Well, look, we better leave it there. Thank you for your uh, AGM insights, Andrew Allen. Uh, take it easy. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. If you want to follow Andrew on Twitter, you can do that at a Allen Sport at a Allen Sport, and you'll catch him on Ars Blog News as well. Um, yeah. So there's your AGM. Anyone feel any better about everything that went down? Or is it just par for the course? Is there an expectation that you'll get answers to the difficult questions? You know, I don't think when there's a, an organization in this day and age that turns over as much money as Arsenal do and as football clubs do, that they become obviously less open and less transparent and they can do things without having to explain themselves, especially when one man owns two-thirds of the club. What the solution to that is at this point, I, I don't really know. I'm not sure there is one, is there? A bit like shutting the stable door after the horse is bolted. But Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, yeah, there you go. There you go. And as the, uh, the fan share scheme has come to an end. I think there'll be fewer shareholders at next year's AGM. Um, whether that makes any difference to anything, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. But um, more and more, uh, these things are just something the club has to do for a legal reason. There are always going to be smaller shareholders, but the impact they can have is um, negligible, really, other than to other than to make their voices heard. And once you're in the era of pre-approved questions and things like that, then um, unfortunately um, they can keep doing the things that they're doing that people don't like. And there's really no way of countering that. The only way football fans can really uh, have an impact on how a club is run is is by not going to the football club. Because ultimately, um, while they do make their money from commercial revenues and from TV, um, they need fans in the ground because... It's such a huge part of it. And, of course, fans, uh, by their nature, don't want to give up something that they love and enjoy. And so it's a real double-edged sword in in that regard. So who knows? We'll just have to wait until the next AGM and see if there's anything uh, we can glean from that, if if at all. Now, um, yeah, I think Arsenal, it's fair to say, is a club about whom there are more websites and blogs and forums than than pretty much any other club um, in England, perhaps even the world. You can move for uh, Arsenal blogs, and there's something for, for everybody out there. And it seems it's the case with Arsenal books now. There are Arsenal books aplenty. And I'm delighted now to welcome the author of a new book about Jordi Armstrong, the uh, famous Arsenal winger. It's called Jordi on the Wing. The author is Dave Seeger. Hi there. Thanks very much for having me, Andrew. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> now, look, um, there are, as uh, anyone with half an eye will have noticed, many, many Arsenal books uh, around <laughs> at this moment in time. <laughs> yeah, uh, certainly are. It seems yeah. to be the new thing uh, doing. doing doing Arsenal books, but you, your your book comes out this week. Um, it's about Jordi Armstrong, a player with Arsenal in the sixties and seventies, and who was a, a coach. But how did this project come about? I mean, this is the first book you've ever written. Yeah, absolutely, um, and and a compl- as much a surprise to me as anybody, quite frankly. Um, the history is uh, really goes back to when Jordi passed away so suddenly uh, in the in, uh, in the autumn of two thousand, when he was uh, reserve team manager at Arsenal, where he had been for ten years. And it was um, Jill, his daughter, um, because of the shock, decided that um, she wanted to have some sort of tribute, some sort of memory for um, her future children and her brother's future children. Her brother's uh, fiancé was pregnant at the time. Mm. That that first child actually was named George. But she thought, well, we're going to have my children and my brother's children are never going to know that how great their grandfather was and, how, and what he meant to so many people and what he did. So at the funeral, uh, through the club, um, through the Islington Gazette, she put out an appeal to ex-colleagues, fans, to sort of send in tributes to the idea to produce some sort of memory book that in the future they could read. Mm. Um, but it just got a little bit too personal for her after, after, after the first few months, and, it, and, it, and life takes over, doesn't it? And it just never happened. It was put on the back um, And it was last autumn... 
when she went onto social media and started tweeting a few photos of, of Geordie, that she sort of realised that there was still so much uh, warmth and affection towards her father, you know, um, mm. amongst the Arsenal community that she sort of revived the project. But the original intention was just to maybe approach a blogger, do a couple of blogs about him. Mm. Um, and luckily, a couple of people independently recommended me, and uh, I spoke to her, and I said, well, if, I think personally you should be true to what you originally intended to do, but I'm not a professional writer, and I suggested to her that the likes of a Steve Stammers or a John Cross, you know, mm. any Arsenal journalist would have bitten off her arm to write about Geordie. But she said she'd spoken to the family and they wanted a fan to write the book. All right, well. So, lucky, lucky me. There you go. <laughs> so well, I went I mean, to meet you and it went from there. Okay, so, um, I mean, given that it is the first book that you've ever written, and I'm just looking at the publisher's website here, I, I guess it's fair to say that the, the amount of research and, and interviews that you've done has been pretty extensive. If I'm looking at just a few of the names, Frank McClintock, Charlie <laughs> George, yeah. uh, David Dean, Lee Dixon, uh, Liam Brady, uh, Frank Stapleton, yeah. you know, even uh, pe- people like uh, Peter Simpson, Bob McNabb. You know, these are uh, people who knew him down through the years. I mean, in terms of the process of doing it, how, how much of a challenge was that? Before we get on to the book itself, you know, well, where did did you get help yeah. to, to, well, to get in first, touch with all the first thing is, I have to be entirely honest and say that obviously I did have a head start in that the original um, tributes I had come into Jill before you know she, she didn't pursue the project were still there. So there were letters from people who had written to her with the express purpose of their tribute being in a book. Yeah, not knowing what that book was going to be, but there were letters mm. in a folder um, that were, I was presented with the last November. And that did include many of his 71 teammates, as well as the likes of Arsene Wenger, Dennis Bergkamp, Lee Dixon, some of the players and staff who were there you know, when he was the reserve team manager. So having been presented with you know, um, a start, there didn't seem any point doing something completely different than Jill had originally intended. Um, and, of course, the, the 71 guys... Are family friends to Jill. Yeah. So the, the telephone numbers for those guys were forthcoming, and it really started with the likes of Frank, particularly Frank, I have to say, and Bob Wilson, mm. who were just so incredibly helpful to me uh, in introducing me to the rest of their teammates, and from from them, it just it just sort of it just sort of rolled. Mm. And I have to say, you mentioned the word George Armstrong to anyone connected with Arsenal, and. Just the answer is what you need. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's popular. Yeah, that that kind of makes (laughs) it a bit easier, doesn't it? Because there is an element that if you're sitting down with somebody like, I don't know, uh, Liam Brady, there's a, I mean, I'm only saying it from my point of view that uh, the couple of times that I've met Liam Brady, I've been completely starstruck because he's he's Liam fucking Brady, you know? Um, I know. Well, my son, my son's named after Liam Brady. So (laughs) as you can imagine, I felt exactly the same. And he picked me up from the Southgate tube and took me on a tour around North London where they all used to live. Yeah. This was Don Howe's house, this was Frank's house, this is where I lived with Will Froster next door to Geordie and Marge, and just took me on a tour, and I was just sat in the car thinking, oh, it's Liam Brady. <laughs> it's a bit surreal, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that must yeah. have made it easier then to do, because uh, obviously there's such warmth and affection for, for Geordie Armstrong that um, yeah. you, you're not trying to tease uh, anything out of people, or, you're, or people don't feel like you're looking for a story or a different angle on something when it, it's fairly obvious that it's a, it's a tribute. Yeah, that, that you're absolutely spot on, Andrew, and you picked that up because that is exactly the case. And, and even though I probably didn't need to say it, I did say it to people, is that, you know, even if they told me stuff that was negative, and uh, you know, there were people he didn't get on with, not many, but there were, and there were fallings out. But I made it very clear that whatever was said, 
only the positive stuff was going in the book. You know, everything else, it was useful for my mm. background, but it wasn't going in the book. So that was very clear in every interview I did. So look, uh, people of a, a certain age, of course, you know, thinking of my, my friend Gunnar Hollick, uh, who's written about Jordy Armstrong <laughs> in the past, um, yeah. will remember him as, as, a, as a player. But perhaps there are those uh, who listen to this show who are younger obviously and never experienced him as a player and what we've got to realize is that he is still the third highest appearance holder in Arsenal's history only Tony Adams and yeah. David O'Leary are ahead of him so give us a bit of a flavor of of Jordy Armstrong the player and what he brought to to Arsenal in all those years well, I think if you speak to any of his teammates in the latter part, um, well, in the sort of 69, 70, 71, 72, in the peak years of Bertie Mee, um, there, are, there may have been bigger names that stood out, the Frank McClintocks, the John Radfords, the Ray Kennedys, but if you ask any of them, you know, what, who was the star of the team, they would they all say Geordie, because he just, he was like the 12th man, he just worked and worked and worked. He was, he was almost like, he was a modern day winger ahead of his time. In, mm. in, in the 60s and 70s, wingers were fancy Dans who stayed on the flank, got the ball, put a cross in, that was what they did. They didn't defend, they didn't help the team. Geordie was just a complete antithesis of everything that was a winger in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and uh, I think, to be honest with you, for, 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 for younger readers, and a few people said this to me, he, he sort of set a trend in that Arsenal changed the way of playing such that they had one old-fashioned winger and one modern winger. Um, so you, you had a wide, out-and-out attacking player, and then you had a box-to-box winger. Uh, and if you think about the parallel, you could take Brian Marwood and David Rowcastle as being sure. a very, very good comparison, or, or uh, you know, a Mark Overmars and um, a Ray Parler. Yeah. You know, he, he was he was the Ray Parler or the David Rowcastle. Uh, a box-to-box, energetic, hard-working, but with the most accurate cross, possibly the the, the sort of top line of English football's ever seen. Yeah. And that's not me saying that. That's most of the people in this. And a so, set uh, piece taker as well. You know, in these days where we're looking at corners being, you know, uh, whizzed all well, over the place. Well, we're not great as well these days. Yeah, for for uh, yeah, it'd be good to have someone like uh, someone like him back. He um, he played 621 games and went off and did various other things in his career, but came back in 1990. Yeah. And as you said, he was he was reserve team manager. Um, I, I suppose there are times when we nowadays we wonder what it would be like to have more connection to the Arsenal of old, you know, a transition from one era to the next, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it'd be interesting to see what he would have done in in modern football because he was under Arsene Wenger still the reserve team manager and and, and probably would have kept going there. He survived the eras. Not many, I mean, Pat, not many survived that transition from 1990 to 2000, you know, when Stuart Houston went and and obviously George Graham before that and he was one of the survivors. Uh, It's very interesting, I think, in that I've divided that period into two chapters because I've interviewed a lot of people who who he coached who came through from the reserves. You like your David Elias, your Kevin Campbell, your Ray Parlers, um, the success stories of the early years. But of course, Everything changed. It wasn't just Arsenal, but football changed. In that, even in the early 90s, it was less commonplace to go out and buy an expensive replacement for somebody mm-hmm. who left. It was just as common to promote from within. So, I think it was Gary Lewin said to me, you know, Geordie, when he came back from Q8, probably could have taken his pick of a management position in maybe the second tier of English football. But in 1990, being a reserve team manager of a first division team was a bigger job than being a manager of a second division team. Yeah, would it have been the pull of Arsenal, though? Would he have been the reserve team manager of another club, you know, at the expense of that? I don't think so. 
No, he wouldn't. He was Arsenal ran through him, you know, um, very, very much so. And, and and George Graham, of course, was a friend. Um, Bob Wilson was still at the club. There was, yeah. you know, it, it wasn't a difficult decision, and he was sort of. I'm not going to go into detail because it's not in the book, uh, and it's quite political. But he was sort of forced out of Q8. It wasn't a case of leaving Q8 because he wanted to. Mm. Things happened, and then the Gulf War was was just about to um, to hit, and it was very timely that George Graham said, "Well." We're having a bit of a reshuffle here, and Stuart's been promoted. Theo's leaving. Um, there's a position as reserve team manager. Would you like it? Mm. And the... interestingly, uh, when I spoke <laughs> to David Dean, he said uh, George Graham had made a proposal to the board, and it was probably the easiest decision the board ever made in the whole time he was there. Wow. Oh, George wants George. Uh, George wants George wants George Graham as a reserve team manager. Uh, any objections? Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was an easy decision. Um, the, the family obviously then have have seen the book in the meantime, presumably. They're they're very happy with how it's turned out and and everything that's everything that's come from it. Given that it is, I suppose, like a piece of history, like you say, to pass down through the ages to to keep his uh, yeah, legacy that, alive. That, 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 yeah, I very much tried to be, as I say, true to the ethos of, of the original, you know, conceived idea of Jill's. Um, she was involved all the way through. In that, you know, every time I had an idea, I ran it past her. She never said no to anything I suggested, but equally, you know, it was a collaboration in that sense. Um, I wanted to, the thing I brought to it was to take it away from just being a purely Arsenal related. So I didn't want to, even though I was going to do it in conversation with people, the struggle was to find the people to have conversations with for the sort of uh, the period when he wasn't Arsenal, mm. when he was manager, or, or in Norway, when he was manager in Q8, when he was coaching at Middlesbrough or Villa or QPR. But I managed to find people to speak to because I wanted to do it in conversation with all the way through. Sure. And then the other thing was to try and add, as you said earlier about the younger reader, I tried to add some context uh, in that some of the more modern players who, who were coached by him, perhaps when they were coming back from injury, like a Dixon or an Adams or a Keown, you know, who, who the younger reader will relate to. And also, I asked most of the people, uh, either fans or players or coaches that I interviewed, um, when I remembered and when they, when they had the time, um, if you could compare Geordie to a player or players of the modern era, um, you know, who, who would that person be or perhaps a combination of people? And would you put a value on him or could you put a value on you know, him at his peak in 2014? So there's a whole chapter that does that, which hopefully will bring him to life for the younger reader as well. Well, um, congratulations, because it's no mean feat writing a book. Um, everyone thinks they can well, do you it. Know. But <laughs> <laughs> until you You've get done it more done. than one, however. <laughs> well, look, you know, um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a big achievement. And there's a launch, of course, tomorrow, which is taking place in uh, Tollington. Absolutely, yeah, which is obviously, as you, you well know, where I drink. But uh, it's, a, it's Martin, a good place to launch books. You also know he's very, very, uh, he's a massive fan and he's, uh, he's very, very helpful with this sort of thing. Sure. What, so, what yeah. time is it all kicking off tomorrow so people can get down a bit early, I think, in the, in the day before things are uh, yeah, really beautiful? Yeah, I mean, we, we had to try and do it before the mad rush before the game. But uh, yeah, mm. so, uh, all being well, uh, well, certainly Eddie Kelly and Frank McClintock and Pat Rice, um, the first two are definite. Pat Rice is, uh, has had a double hernia this week, so I am. Uh, waiting, he, he's absolutely convinced he's going to be up and about. But uh, more, more, <laughs> most definitely, the three of them, and Hard also Marvin Burglass, the club, the, the club magician, is going to be there entertaining people while they're while they're waiting. All right, um, what more to could chat you want? To the legend and get their signatures on the books. So from eleven o'clock till about twelve forty-five, I think the three guys will be there. Okay, as well as the Armstrong family as well. Brilliant. All right, Dave Seeger, the author of Geordie Armstrong on the Wing, published by Legends Publishing. Uh, thanks very much indeed for your time. And thanks for asking me on. Thanks, Andrew.
Thank you very much indeed to Dave. You can follow him on Twitter at GoonerDave66, at GoonerDave66. Apologies for the little bit of an echo on the uh, on the line there. It sounded perfect when I was recording, so I'm not quite sure what went on there, but uh, hopefully it wasn't too irritating. The book, of course, Geordie on the Wing, um, and it is launched tomorrow in the Tollington, uh, so you can get down there. Dave has since told me that Pat Rice is having his operation today, tomorrow, actually, so he won't be able to make it, but there's another event on the 1st. Uh, uh, which he'll be there with Liam Brady. And not only that, if you can't get down to the Tollington tomorrow to uh, to attend the launch and to pick up a copy of the book, and I have one here, very nice, hardback, we have a couple to give away, a couple of signed copies. Uh, all you have to do is uh, answer the following question, right? Uh, how many appearances did Jordy Armstrong make for Arsenal? How many appearances did Jordy Armstrong make for Arsenal? Send your answer, please, to competition at arsblog.com. That's competition at arsblog.com. We'll give the winners out on next week's show. So two of those to give away. Uh, competition at arsblog.com is the email address. Now, uh, interlull is over. That means we've got football again, which is good. Um, even though we are in something of a bind at the back, as we mentioned earlier with Andrew. No Lauren Koscielny uh, for tomorrow anyway. And how much longer, I don't quite know. Um, but Callum Chambers, of course, is suspended also. So that means you would guess that Hector Bellerin is going to come in at right back. It means you've got Per Mertesacker at centre-half. We've got Kieran Gibbs also uh, at centre-half. And that means, I think, Nacho Monreal as the fourth-choice centre-half. Uh, something that Arsene Wenger said was the case um, when the transfer window closed, that Monreal would be pressed into duty if the need arose. And the need has indeed arisen. We don't have anyone else to do the job. There's Isaac Hayden, of course, but I just think, as as we said earlier, it might be just too much inexperience in a back four uh, to play two guys who, who've only played, what, uh, three or four games between them against a team like Hull, who, as we know, from pretty recent experience, can be dangerous. Uh, you think back to Wembley in May, uh, those opening eight or nine minutes, and, uh, yeah, that was our that was our best team, pretty much. Mertesacker and Koscielny there. Kieran Gibbs heading one off the line. So I think he'll go with the experience of Monreal. Now, he has spoken about how it's not a position that he feels particularly comfortable in because, well, basically he's never played there in his life. And we are in this ludicrous situation where we're having to play a left back at centre half simply because we couldn't find a player to bring in during the summer. Um, There is no margin for error here in terms of um, forgiveness that if something happens that Monreal doesn't play particularly well and it costs us a goal or a point well you know you can blame the player if you want but obviously the situation is far more to blame and there'll be a distinct lack of forgiveness um, should that happen but you would like to think that we still have enough in the team um, to get a result at home against Hull. And we do go into this run of games where you'd like to think as well that we should be able to pick up some points and build some momentum and get some players back uh, and hopefully fit again when you look at uh, it's Hull tomorrow. Then we've got Anderlecht away, followed by Sunderland away, followed by Burnley at home, Anderlecht at home, Swansea away, a little bit more tricky than the others. And then you go into the next interlull. The far side of that interlull, then you've got, you've got Manchester United and Borussia Dortmund. So we really do want to be getting some results 
under our belts to boost the confidence and the belief and get that bit of momentum going. Um, so even with Monreal at centre-half, you'd like to think that what we've got in midfield and up front, even without Mesut Ozil, we've still got Danny Welbeck, we've got Alexis, we've got Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, we've got Santi Cazorla, there's Lucas Podolski. You know, there's plenty out the, uh, the attacking end of the pitch. So... Um, it can't just be down to not having a centre-half if we don't get the right result uh, tomorrow against Hull. Uh, obviously, the midweek game then against Anderlecht is very important. We were beaten in our first away game in the Champions League to Dortmund, came back, beat Galatasaray 4-1 in a much more convincing way, and we do have to get results uh, away from home if we want to qualify out of this group. And Anderlecht, I suppose, are the, are the relative minnows of the group. So that's a fixture from which you want to see us take three points. But we can look ahead to that game in a little more detail uh, on Monday's Arscast Extra, uh, during which we'll look back at what happened uh, in the game against Hull. So let's keep fingers crossed that A, we get the right result, B, we come through the game without any more injuries, uh, and C, that maybe one or two of the injuries might just have healed before we have to go away in Europe and and do that business. So uh, that's about it for this Arscast. There'll be another one next Friday, uh, during which we'll be talking to Amy Lawrence about her new book, it's Books Central. We should call it Library Cast at some point. But we'll be talking to Amy next week about the book about the Invincibles. Uh, a jolly good book it is, too. Um, so until Monday's Arscast Extra and until next week's Arscast, have yourselves a great time. Take it easy. Cheers. Bye bye. Hello, I am the penis of William Gallas. It has been a long time since we have spoken, but life has become very hard for me down the years. Unfortunately, not hard in the erotic sense, but difficult. I have not scored a goal with myself for many, many years. I do not blame me personally because all I can do is put myself in the right position. But when we were playing, Ike preferred to use his other head. You might have seen the story now that William Gallas has retired from football. This is a good thing. Because now I can emancipate myself. The penis of William Gallas will become free. From the dick that is William Gallas. And I will be free. Free at last to travel the world and to... To get in boxes. Oh God, I need him, don't I? Why? Why? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 